Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. going to be fun in the midst of it all ezekiel 43 i suspect that you're there by now ezekiel 43 and verse 10 the bible says thou son of man shew the house to the house of israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities let them measure the pattern and if they be ashamed of all that they have done shew them the form of the house the fashion thereof, the goings out thereof, and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof. Write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. That is a real wordy verse. <laughs> thereof. <laughs> verse 12. This is the law of the house upon the top of the mountain the whole limit thereof round about shall be most holy behold this is the law of the house I'd like to read verse 12 from the living bible as well today it says and this is the basic law of the temple holiness the entire top of the hill where the temple is built is holy yet this is the primary law concerning it the law this morning I want to preach today to us the law of the house and the law of the house according to Ezekiel is that it's most holy it's holiness now before you start grabbing your purse and your jacket and thinking man he's about ready to come down the line let me tell you if that is your perception of Holiness, then you have a very narrow perception. It is and contains a whole lot more than just what you may be perceiving right now. Amen. But I want to talk today about the law of the house. Now, typically I try, seriously, for I try a lot of times on Sunday mornings uh, with God's help and leading to, to minister to souls and, and reach for people that don't know God or need a refreshment with God. And, and no doubt this is applicable for that today, but that might not be so much as where my hand is this morning. All right? But this is what I feel like God has been dealing with me on throughout this week. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning asking God, Lord Jesus, for the anointing of your spirit. I'm unable, Lord God, to be able to say this in a way God, that it can, Lord, make, Lord, the most meaningful, Lord, God, application for the lives of the people. But, God, what I cannot do, your spirit can do. What I'm unable, Lord God, to do, you're able to do, Lord God, but the purpose of your spirit today. God, help us, Lord, in the next little while, God, to glean from your word. We'll fail not to love you and thank you for it. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ, I pray. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. The law. The law of the house. Lucas, you just keep doing that, son. And whenever you're a teenager, you'll be up here clapping while pastor's preaching. And there's nothing wrong with that. Amen. Almost a fifth of the book of Ezekiel, 
at least nine chapters that is, from chapter 40 to chapter 48, deal with the vision that Ezekiel had of a restored temple. For that matter, many of Ezekiel's prophecies that he spoke and gave to the nation of Israel dealt with issues of holiness, dealt with issues of purity. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel's view, failure to protect the sanctity or the holiness of Solomon's temple was a major cause of the disaster that had befallen Jerusalem. As a result of not keeping the sanctity or the holiness of the old temple, Ezekiel, along with thousands of others, were carried away into captivity and living their lives by the river Shabar in the land of Babylon, which was not their own. In Ezekiel's view, he says a lot of that has to do with his people not keeping his temple and the sanctity and the holiness of his temple. And no doubt this bears upon the mind of Ezekiel. He is the son of a priest, so that may explain a little bit of his concern of the temple and its purity and its holiness and its rituals. Not only that, but Ezekiel was born during a time of spiritual restoration. Ezekiel found his entry into this world during a moment of revival. So no doubt that had a bearing upon his thoughts as well. Whenever Ezekiel was born into this world, it was just right before, just a year before the law book of God was rediscovered in the house of God during the reign of Josiah. And upon discovering that, Josiah and those of his day began to get everything concerning the house of the Lord, the people of the Lord, all back into divine order as they needed to be. So being born during a time of reformation, being born during a time of revival, no doubt would have bearing upon Ezekiel because Ezekiel, for the next several years of his new begun life in this world, would be exposed to what revival felt like to what reformation looked like. And he desired the same for his generation. He desired the same for his time. And so the Bible tells us in verse 10 that God leading Ezekiel told him, son of man, show Israel the temple. Show them the temple, a restored temple that is to happen and to take place. And perhaps upon seeing the temple they will be ashamed of their iniquities. Perhaps whenever they take in the view of the place of where God's presence and where God's power performs, they, they will be ashamed of their iniquity. Show them the church. Show them the house of God that you have envisioned. And if they have a good response to the vision of the house of God, if they feel ashamed over their iniquities, he said, get a little bit more detail. Not just in a generality, he says, but get more detailed with them and, and show them the forms thereof and show them the gates for walking in and the gates for going out and show them the chambers and share with them the ordinances and tell them all these other things if they show shame, that they have a, a, a positive response just to the generality of the house of God. Get more detailed with them and perhaps there, there is something that will take place in their lives and perhaps even if you write 
write it down for them. If you show them the measurement of, 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 of the altar and the measurement of the walls and all these different things, this holy house of God, perhaps they'll even do the laws that they've left unkept over the process of their life. And so God had a motive. Ezekiel, I want you to show Israel the house and perhaps by showing them the house of God, they'll feel bad over what they've not been doing and they'll turn around and start doing what they should have been doing. And he says, all of this could flow from a glimpse of the house of God. Can someone say amen? And so God simplifies everything then, though for Ezekiel and Israel, he says, you show them the temple in a generality, a restored temple that is to come. You show them even the minute details, the measurements and all these things. He says, but here is the essence of it all. You can tell them how thick the walls are. You can tell them about how many chambers are in it. You can tell them about every law and ordinance concerning it. He says, but what it all boils down to this, Ezekiel, not just for you, but for the people. They can look at all the details, but don't get caught up in all the details because the summation everything, all the details, all the measurements leads to this one thing and that is one word can describe my house. My house is holy. My house is holy. And so God told Ezekiel and the people that the law of his house is holiness. And the interesting thing about when we talk about holiness or holy, that holiness does not define God. All right? I don't use the word, amen, to define God as holy. Amen, holiness is what God is. It's not a word used to define him. It's what he is. It's his essence. He, it's who he is. And by his own omission, God spoke in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, he said, be ye holy for I, by his own omission, I am holy. Amen. And so in other words, God gives holiness meaning. Holiness doesn't define God. God defines holiness. Bible says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 14 as obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to everybody say the former the former lust in your ignorance but as he which hath called you is holy so be ye holy in all manner of conversation translated life all manner of life because it is written be ye holy for I am holy that being said this morning Amen. This God that we learn from his word that changes not gives an unchanging meaning then to a term that society and the church has said is a progressive word. In other words, holiness isn't what it used to be. Meaning that it had a certain place of origin, but it has changed, it has developed. There's been things added to it and subtracted to it. Amen. And its definition and what it is, it's not what it used to be according to society. And many of the churches of society today, that holiness is progressive. It has the ability to change. But I come to declare on this Sunday morning that holiness is not progressive in that sense. If there's any sense that holiness is to be progressive, let us be because it's more pervasive. And it's where it was not formerly, not because its character has been altered. Someone say amen. 
Whenever we read in the scripture, we understand very clearly. I'm talking to you today about a term that's not a new term. It's neither is it a term that we need to avoid, neither is it a term that we need to be afraid of because holiness is God. If you're afraid of the holy, you're afraid of God. Holiness is God. The first time that the word holy is ever used in scripture is whenever Moses is approaching the burning bush in the desert. And as he approaches there, the word of the Lord came to come to him from the bush and said, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes because the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. God said that Moses said, I've been on this desert many times before. What's changed between then and now that this ground is holy ground because that ground had been touched. That ground had been visited by the presence and the power of the almighty God. And God has the right to determine the holiness or the sanctity of a place when he's present there. Someone say amen. And since God is a holy God, everywhere that God goes, whatever God touches, whatever God invests himself in, has the ability of becoming holy. We got hot baptismal water up here, and it's doing a work on me already. Hallelujah. Amen. It is holy everywhere he goes, what he does. Everything has the ability of being holy if it's touched by God. And it's after God meets with Moses in this meeting that the terms for holiness begin to explode. On the left and on the right, over 830 instances of the term in all forms are used in the Old Testament scripture. And almost 350 of those terms take place after Genesis. Those next four books of the Bible, God is speaking about on the left, on the right, every day would seem to be about things that are holy. He calls his Sabbath holy. He talks about the holy heaven, the holy throne, the holy mountain, holy days, holy priests, holy anointing oil, holy first fruits, holy utensils, a holy nation, and a holy people. Because God from the very beginning of time was bent on a people, been on a nation, been on somebody to take his holy name and his holy character as their own. Someone say yes. God was not, God was not by no means favorable of it just being something that was cloaked in an Old Testament tabernacle of utensils and pieces of furniture. But even Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah had a vision of the Lord, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And there were seraphims that had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they did fly. And the Bible says those seraphims cried out to this vision of God that Isaiah had and said holy holy is the Lord of hosts now look he said the whole earth is full of your glory not just a burning bush not just a tabernacle not just some little scantily place off in the east but the will of God is that his holiness his righteousness his power would cover the whole earth from that point Even God was given a vision to his people that I don't want this to be in just a spot. I want it to pervade through the whole land. Someone say amen. Amen. Ephesians 1, 4. The Bible says, according as he hath chosen us. Everybody say us. Us in him. 
us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world that we I, I might slow down here a few spots today that we should be holy without blame before him in love you see what's going on here there is a desire this is what he did and this is why he did it you understand the verse here he chose us in him God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world the question is why did he he did what he did so that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. <laughs> I'm saying that before Adam and Eve was in the garden, God had already chosen us in him so that he would have a holy people. God already chose us in him so he would have a sanctified people a dedicated people, a people that would somehow be conformed to his will and his character, a people that would be communion with God before the world. Someone say amen. God, it's who he is. He's holy. All throughout the Old Testament scripture, a lot of times even in Isaiah, you read it over and over again, this, this terminology of God being the holy one holy one see the terminology over and over again holy one not holy two not holy three not holy uh, multiplicity but holy one and so the question that we beg to answer today is this if god is the holy one everybody say one, one. then how can all these other things mountains tabernacles ground bushes and even us be holy if he's the only one holy. How can anything else be holy if there's only one holy one? Someone hearing me right now? The only way that the ground can be holy. The only way a tabernacle can be holy. The only way that a house or even a people can be holy. Since he is a holy one. is for all those other things. Tabernacle. Ground, people, mountain, utensil, it's got to become holy by the relationship with the holy one. In other words, all these other things must become an extension of whom he is and what he is in order to be holy. There's not going to be another holy, but you can come into relationship with the one who is holy and by extension of his nature, his character, and his power, you are encompassed in being the holy. Someone say amen. See, a holy throne is not another holy because there's only a holy one. The holy throne is nothing more but an extension of the one who is holy. Uh-huh. And that being said today, holiness then cannot be accomplished outside a relationship with the holy. One. The ground was holy. The tabernacle was holy. 
the temple, the sacrifices, etc., were holy only because of their connection and relation to the Holy One. Somewhere along the road, His presence had invaded them. Turn the mic off myself. And so with considering this today, I'm not offended. I'm not offended as a pastor when someone points at 1121 Cedar Street or me as an individual and they call me a holy roller or they call me a holiness church. I'm not offended by that. Amen. I'm not offended by that. Though, though much of the world is probably talking about our standards or our lifestyle convictions and distinctives, I'm not offended by that because those summations are not the summation of true holiness. They are not what all holiness is about. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and the very God of peace sanctify you or make you holy. What holy? Your spirit, your soul and your body. So there's a whole lot more to it than just those distinctives and those standards but I'm not offended when they call us a holiness church because since there is only one holy being a holiness church means we must be in relationship with the holy one and have become an extension of who that God is if they call you a holy roller, you go and raise your hand and thank God. That means you're in relationship with the only holy one. You go on and dance and shout as a church. That means that God has made you an extension of his divine nature and character. What it tells me is a holiness church is not a church void of his presence or his power. Someone say amen. Just walk with me here for a little bit. Does it not concern you that the same churches that raise their hand in opposition, listen to me now, to the blurring of sexual orientation in the blending of gender uniqueness have no qualm it would seem over the holiness of the church holiness in its basic sense is separation separation from the world but separation unto God it's being set apart but people standing or sitting perhaps in pews today and they don't want society removing the lines drawn in our culture but they'll forfeit the similar lines that are in the church because when we talk about gender uniqueness or sexual orientation we're talking about distinction we're talking about something being set apart. We're talking about something that shows some line of difference. And there'll be people every day under the week leading up to the election, I tell you, that's going to be crying out about that. But we're eager and willing to, to just blur the lines that's in the church. Concerning separation, concerning distinction, concerning these things that are holy unto the Lord. I prepared my mind for this. Oh, Brother McGee. No. In our education system today 
It's being watered down to protect the feelings of children and graduates. They don't want anybody to feel different. They don't want anybody to feel inferior. They don't want anybody to have any esteemed hurt in their life. Even children today, I'm telling you the truth because I know firsthand knowledge. Amen. Children today competing in school activities, no longer just in little school activities together at school, no longer getting first or second or third placement because everybody's a winner. Everybody's a winner. And everyone's going to get a ribbon because you did a good job. You participated. There are schools in this past graduation. There are schools across America that didn't label a valedictorian or a salutatorian. Because they didn't want anybody to feel stupid. I don't want to just be kind, but I want to just be forward as well. The fact of the matter is this, folks. Some kids are smarter than other kids. Some kids excel in certain areas more than others. Some do it because they've applied themselves. They put in the effort. Is this okay? Brother Cannon said we need a revival of stupid in, at conference in our churches. Some people's just stupid. Not everybody can be first. And there is a winner. But we look at these things in grade school. We look at these things in graduates. And we look at these things in our culture. culture, And we step back and we say, I tell you what, this world is like getting stupid. Someone say Amen. But there's others that will sit on the church pew and cast aside the idea of holiness. The issue in the kingdom culture without realizing doing so is blurring a line, blending something on the church front. But we're eager to say that's stupid, but we're easily ready to endorse it in the church. I tell you what, as a pastor... Culture and church culture. It's all stupid. Anytime you want to somehow get rid of the distinction and the distinguishment and the separation and the dedication, it's all stupid. It needs not be happening in our culture, but it for sure should not be happening in the church. God said, because if you boil my house down, all it comes down to this, holiness. Someone say amen. It'll get worse before it gets better. Let me tell you what the blending of the lines is. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. Why? Because the Bible talks about us leading toward one world government, one world economy, one world religion, one world military. How does that happen? You start taking away lines. You start taking away separation. You start taking away distinction. We're all under the same umbrella. We're all under this same thing. And so if you're willing to accept some of those things now, you'll be a part of the one world government then. And if you're willing to take part in letting some things go of holiness of the church now, you'll be a part of a one world religious system that stands for nothing in a day to come. What do you? Because that's what happens when you let and remove distinguishing traits and let the distinctives fall. So much amen. Oh, it's not happening? Yeah, it is. Used to, you could label a, someone a Republican and you knew what they stood for. Or a Democrat and what they stood for. I don't know if there is a straight Republican or Democrat anymore. Because it's all jumbled up. Why? Everybody's taking away the distinction. 
take it away, take it away, take it away, take it away. Bark about it, take it away. But somebody needs to start barking about the blurring of the line in the church. We do not, we do not. Listen, we are walking to the beat of a different drama. The world is not setting the pace for the church. The true church has never taken its cue from the world. And so why should we start now? We've been sent into the world to be a trendsetter. The church culture is not a mimicking culture. It's different. It's out of this world. Because once everything is under the umbrella of sameness, people are going to notice the church, the true church, and the contrast of it. We need to be one. I'm for oneness. Man, I believe in one God. I'm for oneness. But not when that per se oneness compromises his holiness. Listen, in a very literal, in a very literal sense then, Hebrews 12, 14, at all times is grabbed for holiness scripture, follow all men with peace and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. In a very literal sense, then, it is holiness without which no man shall see the Lord because there is only a holy one. There's only a holy one. And the Bible tells me in Corinthians that the common man, the fleshly man, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So listen. You can only see the Lord if you are in relationship with him and become an extension of who and what he is. And so without holiness, in the literal sense, no man. No man shall see the Lord. I wish we had a unit we could just turn the air on more up here. I'm getting baptized in, in immersion and I'm not even in the water. <laughs> when Ezekiel had this vision, Solomon's temple had been in ruins already for 14 years. And what he seems to give in chapters 40 through 48 is a very, very similar description of the old temple that they have had. They had many of the measurements even of the envisioned restored temple that Ezekiel seen had the same measurements as the temple of Solomon that we read of in Kings and in Chronicles. And so when they're seeing this, no doubt this is stirring up in the minds of the people, the nation of Israel, a remembrance of the former temple. There's no doubt other aspects of this temple that Ezekiel had a vision of that weren't found in Solomon's temple or Zerubbabel's temple or Herod's temple, some of those other temples that were to follow. But it seems as though the vision of the restored temple did have some similarities to the old one that would probably never exist in his lifetime. Amen. But perhaps some of these similarities were enough, amen, to the old that the people could relate to them and could remember Solomon's temple. Perhaps they would remember the day that that temple was dedicated and how Solomon even had to 
hollow, a larger area in that temple called the altar because it could not handle all the sacrifice that were taking place in his day. Maybe they will remember Solomon's lengthy prayer. Because it was long, folks. His lengthy prayer. How if a person sinned or had famine due to sin or lacked rain because of sin? All that person needed to do, Solomon in his prayer said, God, whenever they turn toward, everyone say, your house. When they turn toward your house and they pray, amen, for forgiveness, that you will grant forgiveness from your house where your name is and where your righteousness is. See, right now in Ezekiel's time, he's dealing with a people that's polluted by sin. They have defiled God's name by their sinful acts. They had buried their dead kings, which in reality was their dead idols. They put their dead idols right up against the temple, the old temple of the living God, wall to wall, post to post. There was only a wall of separation, amen, between the things that were sacred and the things that were profane. But God said in this newer temple that I've given a vision of Ezekiel 2, it's not just going to be a wall of separation, but the whole limit of the mountain thereof and the whole house thereof shall be most holy. When I talk about the term most holy, that was the term that was used for the holies of holies. The place where the Ark of the Covenant was. The place where God's spirit and his presence dwell. But now, the Bible says that this most holy terminology, this description, which had been used exclusively most holy for the holies of holies, was now going to characterize the whole house and even the environment around about the house. We'll lose my voice if I don't keep it wet. So God says, based upon this premise, we're not talking about just the holies of holies now. We're talking about the entirety of the house is most holy. The environment surrounding the house, the surroundings, most holy. He says, Ezekiel, show them the house. Show them my most holy house, the surroundings that even exude holiness. Because if you do, perhaps they'll feel the loss of the temple that's destroyed. And if you do, maybe they're looking for somewhere to turn. Like I told them to in Solomon's temple, turn toward that house, pray for forgiveness, and they'll get it. But since the temple's destroyed, perhaps they feel like they have nothing to turn toward. So I want to show them the restored temple that it might incite some shame that will provoke some prayers. For forgiveness. Because the law of this house isn't singing. Because the law of this house isn't even preaching. It's not a committee or a good program. The law of this house is holiness. And it's going to pervade all over top the mountain where it sets. Notice he says I'm going to put my holy house. Not in the valley. It's going to be on the mountain. In other words this thing whose law is holiness. Don't let it be sublime. Let it be exalted. Let it be elevated. 
Let it be where it's not hid, but it's easily seen. David even spoke of the house of God that it's beautiful for situation, meaning it's beautiful for its placement. In other words, this holiness, it's not just to the holies of holies, but it's to every chamber, every altar, every piece of furniture, every timber, and even the surroundings of it. He said the holiness of my house is going to be far-reaching. In other words, he said there's going to be a day when every hall, every chamber, every piece of furniture, every gate is going to be most holy. See, holiness was regulated to the sanctuary, the holies of holies. But God says it's going to pervade and it's going to encompass the house and the surroundings of the house. On the day that Christ hung on Calvary, the moment that he gave up the ghost, the temple which was Herod's temple at that time that had a holies of holies, that was most holy, that had a veil before it. The Bible says in the moment that all this took place, that the veil that was in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. What God was showing for, by virtue of this literal sign is something he was about ready to do in the spirit because the holiness that was contained in the holies of holies. God says, I'm breaking the separation, amen, and it's going to get out into the, the holy place, the outer court, and even the surrounding areas of the house. David said it like this in Psalms 93. He said, Lord, he said, holiness becometh thy house, O Lord, forever. Mm, what are you talking about? I'm talking about a very literal temple, but I'm going to take us to the realm of the spiritual. He's talking about a temple. Just look at yourself and say, I'm the temple. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 27, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be, that it should be, that it should be holy and without blemish. God said, there's a law of my house, which house you are, which temple you are. There's a law concerning that. That house is to be holy. Someone say amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, 17, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye? Someone say amen. We talk about holiness. We talk about being separated from the world. We talk about being dedicated to God. We talk about being conformed to his will and to his character. We talk about communion with God. Spurgeon said, if we be holy, we must dwell in God. And God must dwell in us. Because we cannot be holy at a distance from him. Redemption is not complete in deliverance alone. We're set free in order to become like the one who redeems. We're set free in order to become like the one who redeemed us. He wants us to be like him after being born into the family of God he wants it to become our desire to reproduce the family likeness I'll just use my side of family because the majority of us here not all the McBrims are here okay my wife becomes a part of this family she took my name McGee you hear me? It is. It is no surprise then that through the lives of what the produce, the offspring reproduction of us generated, it is no surprise 
that there's McGee traits in our children. Because when you become a part of a family, you should have a desire to reproduce the family likeness. You're going to be able to look at some of the kids and say, well, the offspring from this, that looks a little bit like grandma so-and-so or papa such-and-such. And now the blue someone gets real tall, and that's the third, that's a great uncle, you know. So people look at me and ask me where I got the height from my family. Kimberly, where do you know, look at my brother, my sisters, my mom, where in the world do you get your height? Well, I got a great uncle Chicky that's a pretty tall guy. It might have came for him. But how in the world does that happen? Because when you become a part of the family, you start producing the family likeness. Someone say amen. Hallelujah. And so I start producing some of the likeness of the family. I'm a growing Christian in maturity, holiness and soul, in spirit and in body. The Bible says in Romans 6, 19, I must hurry. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded, everybody say yielded. For as ye have yielded your members, Ye have, somewhere in the past. You've yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so, I'm slowing down here now. Even so now, yield, everybody say yield. Your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. Apostle said. You've yielded your life to a variety of things in the past. Yield is an act of the will. He says, you've yielded yourself to a lot of things in the past. He says, the same way you yielded to those things, he says, now. Same function, yield. Now. Yield yourself to be members and servants to holiness unto righteousness. And so if they yielded to things in the past, the problem is not the ability to be able to yield. It's what they're yielding to. If you yield to the past long enough, it's easy to yield to something you've always been in submission to. But it's hard to yield yourself to something you've never submitted to. And the only way it becomes easier is if you continually try to practice it again and again and again. And when you do that, that thing that used to be easy to yield to will be harder to because you've given your allegiance to something on a regular basis. Someone say amen. amen. The Bible says in verse 22 of that same chapter. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. He says now, as servants of God, yielding to God, he says your fruit, your offspring, your produce, guess what? It's unto holiness. You're starting to bear your daddy's likeness. The Bible says, look at it. Ephesians 4, 24. Amen. It says, and that ye put on the new man. Everybody say new man. 
and that ye put on, that ye put on. Here we are, your will again. That ye, you know, that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and you put it on. Let me tell you something. You got to put it on every day. You got to put it on every day. It's not a repentance, baptism, and filling of the Holy Ghost put on. But I got to put it on every day from that day forward. I got to put it on. I got to put it on. And here is the great thing about it. God created. Look what the Bible says. God created that new man that you yield yourself, subject yourself to, and put on. God created it to be holy. We put the mindset that we got to make it holy. But in doing that, I think we're trying to make an old man holy. If you'll just put on the new man, the new man's already. And I got to get this right. I got to get this right. You're trying to take an old man that was subjected to old ways and make him holy. It'll never work like that. But if you put on the new man every day, that man was all created and designed to be holy because it is an extension of the character and the nature of God. It's in relationship with the Holy One. It's the law of this house. So he shows them the house. Hopefully they've had a turn of heart by seeing the house. By seeing the holiness of the house in comparison to themselves. They're wanting to make amends. There's repentance. They're wanting to put something on. They're wanting to put on the new man. They're wanting to subject to being a member of God. Listen to me. After God declares that his house, the law of it is holiness, look at verse number, and that's not up there, but you look in your Bibles. Look at verse number 13. After that was established for Ezekiel and the children of Israel, look at this. The Bible says, look at the first place that God takes Ezekiel and the nation of Israel after they identify that the law of the house is holiness. He takes them and says, here is the altar. I want you to realize that this is a holiness house. Now look at this. There's the altar. Why God in the world? I didn't mean to do that on purpose. Why God in the world would you establish that? And of all the things that you could show us next, you'd say, here's the altar. I believe because Old Testament writ gives us insight. In Exodus 29, in Exodus 29 is the make an atonement for Aaron the priest. I know I've been on Aaron and his sons here a lot, it seems like, lately, but that's all right. I guess it's a saddle, a horse, I'll ride it. Here's Aaron and his sons. They're making atonement for themselves to function in the office. They're also making atonement, the Bible says, for the altar. Look what the Bible says in Exodus 29, verse 37. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, separate it, set it apart, distinguish it, dedicate it, make it holy. And it shall be an altar. Now look at the words here. Most holy. Look at the last phrase. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. Now, I wrestled around with this a little bit. Because my mind works sometimes and sometimes it don't. I began reading this. I said, God, are you saying that whatever touches your altar should be holy before it touches? 
Or are you saying whatever touches your altar is made holy by touching? I understand he gave us prescription concerning what sacrifices to bring, their condition, how many of them. He gave a prescription. But none of those things were holy until they touched the altar. Hold on. I say that because in New Testament scripture, the Bible says in Matthew 23, 19, there's a question that Christ asked those. He said, if you fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth or the altar that maketh holy the gift. From that understand, it's by the sacrifice touching the most holy altar that the sacrifice becomes holy. It's got to be in relation. So Ezekiel makes something very firm. The law of this house, every chamber, this, that, never, is holy. Most holy. Holiness. You know what I believe he's telling them after all that and saying, here's the altar? He says, you want to know how to be holy? Stay in relationship with what's already most holy. Do not negate the altar. Do not negate the altar in your life. And here's the good news. You don't have to be holy before you get there. You don't have to be holy before you get there. You become holy by going there. You become holy by touching it. And it touching you. And frequenting it. And spending some time there. You become an extension of the house. Someone say amen. Brother Mason, come stand with me. That's a lot to take in. Stand. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. I'm, I haven't taken a survey. I didn't ask all the pastors on Facebook. I didn't call anybody. I didn't do no research online concerning this. But I'm pretty confident that you will not have as much difficulty with the law of the house being holiness. If you regularly visit the altar. I never had anybody in the history of my life leave the church over separation that had a consecrated life at an altar. Because it has the ability of making holy. So this is a holy house. Look right here, folks. First thing, there's the altar. Here's the measurement of it. Here's this of it. It's most holy. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Brother Zach, I'm headed to a close. It says, having therefore these promises. We got to look backward. If you look backward to some of the previous chapters, the promises that were given is about how we would be new creatures in Christ Jesus. Some of the promises that were given was talking about the, the unfathomable grace of God. Some of the promises that are recorded in there even speaks about the, that day being the day of salvation. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. If I could say get to the altar of the flesh and spirit. Look now, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let me just take the first phrase and the last phrase and throw them together. Having therefore these promises, perfect holiness in the fear. 
It's given the possibility of an, a new creature in Christ. Of salvation. Of grace. Therefore, because of the promise. Let there be a perfecting of holiness. In the fear of God. Oh, Brother McGee. I preached long. Welcome to the new me, I guess. Brother McGee, there is just no perk in all of that stuff. Baloney. You know, whenever Jesus Christ walked upon the earth, the first ones to recognize him in Luke 4, the first ones to recognize him, look, as the Holy One, I like it. The Holy One from God. And there's not another Holy One. There can only be one Holy One. So whenever they seen Jesus and seen the Holy One, they seen that this man is nothing more than relationship and extension. He's a part of God. The first ones, listen to me, the first ones to recognize that he was the Holy One, the Bible says in Luke 4, were demons. Before one man picked upon him being a part being the holy one before one man did demons did let me tell you what a perk of holiness does before anybody else notices hell notices who you're in relationship with hell notices what you're an extension of hell notices your newfound character and your newfound essence What's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. It's the big deal of when the seven sons of Sceva went to cast out the devil of that one man. Said, we adjure you by Jesus. Come out. And the devil said, what? We, we adjure you by, by the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out. What did the devil say? The Bible says he ripped those seven sons of Sceva to shreds. Said, Paul, I know. Why? Because he frequented an altar. And the holiness that he had was derived from somewhere else. He said, Paul I know, and Jesus I know. If the devil doesn't know who you are, it's probably because you've not become an extension of who he is. Because the law of his house is holy. And that's going to matter more and more, folks, as the day draws dimmer. And as the clouds roll in in this end time, we are living. Yes, I told you several weeks ago, I can say we're living in the end time. Ever since Christ ascended, we've been living in the end time. We are living in the end time. But as the clouds grow darker and the things start coming together here, here, under all these different umbrellas of oneness, you want to be a soul that is devoted to God, that is holy, marked by the holiness of the Holy One, because hell's going to take recognition of you and who you are. You can be a chameleon and just blend in with the masses. Or you can be a set apart as devoted, dedicated, and communion with the Holy One. Let's bow our heads all across this place. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.